difficult or at least one of the most difficult things you've ever had to deal with. Maybe you're dealing with that difficult thing today. When we have those difficult moments, what do we need the most? What do we need the most? Well, here's some things we probably don't need in our most difficult moments. What we don't need in our most difficult moments is usually too much advice from too many people. We usually don't need too many people's personal experiences in our difficult moments. In our difficult moments, we usually don't need kitten posters with catchy phrases and catchy slogans. And we definitely don't need too much of a freezer full of half gallon of cookie dough ice cream. You know, there's, there's a lot of things when life is difficult we don't need too much of. Know what we need in the most difficult, trying, devastating, ugly, distressful moments of life is to experience beauty. We need to experience beauty. What does that mean? Well, I came across an interesting way to, to think about it. Why do we put up Christmas decorations? No, I mean, really, why do we do this? Okay, come on, this is hard work. Actually, I don't do it. My wife and my daughter do it, so I'm not going to complain much. But why do we put up Christmas decorations? Why do we get in our car at night and, and drive around town looking at Christmas lights? Why do we go to the beach? Why do we go to the mountains? Why do we go to the Grand Canyon? Why do we go to art museums? Why do we go to car shows? Why do we watch the chef at Waffle House cook our bacon? Why do, why do we do this? It's because we want to see beauty. We, we want to be engaged with beauty. We have been created for beauty. There's a story told about Benjamin Franklin. He was in Paris spending the evening with some people. And he told them that he had a, an old manuscript and he had a poem that he was going to read from that manuscript. And so he read the poem, and, and when he got done, boy, the people went ecstatic. They're like, oh my goodness, that was fantastic. That, that was beautiful. Where can we get a copy? And Franklin said, well, all you need to do is to grab a Bible and turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. Because that's the beautiful poem he had read to them. See, the Word of God contains the beauty of God. The, the beauty that our hearts long for the most. The beauty for the bad times and the sad times. The beauty for the good times and the happy times. The beauty of God is found in the truth of God. For the good times and the bad times. Habakkuk knew about bad times. Boy, he knew. His country was full of sin and injustice everywhere that you turned. And then he got some updates. A wicked nation of people called the Chaldeans, they were coming to take over his country. There was plenty of bad things going on. In the midst of all the bad, in the midst of all the difficult, Habakkuk needed some beauty. Oh, he needed some beauty. So where is he going to find it? Well, let's find out. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning with verse 17. 
prophet writes this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Somewhere in North Africa or Central Asia or even in the Bible Belt, this exact scene or one similar is happening this morning. A mom has turned to her son and said, hey, it's time for us to eat. Go get us some figs. There's no more figs, Mom. Okay, then go get us some grapes off the vine. There's no more grapes. Okay, then then go get us some olives. There's no more olives either. Okay, well, we'll go get us some some weed and, and we'll make some bread. There's no more weed, Mom. We'll go get one of our, our lambs and, and we'll have some meat. There's no more lambs, Mom. There's nothing. It's all gone. We have nothing. We have nothing. Now, someone might hear a prophet of God saying that and go, whoa, hey, what about that milk and honey? <laughs> I thought God promised to meet the needs of his people. Is, is God a liar? Is God backing out on his promise? Well, what was his promise? About 1,400 years before Jesus was born, Moses said this to the people, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go Blessed and happy and fortunate and content and satisfied if you are careful to obey the truth of God. The unique blessings of God are strategically connected to loving and obeying and honoring His truth. Now, it is true that sometimes God just blesses. Because he's kind and gracious and compassionate, sometimes God just blesses. Right now, throughout the world, every single Christian and every atheist and every agnostic, right now, they are being blessed because they are breathing. Their breath is a reflection of the kindness of God. But that doesn't take away from God's standard of his unique blessings being connected to obedience to his truth. So consider this. For how many sins were the first man and the first woman thrown out of heaven on earth? Kind of just the one. So if if we were to make a little list this week, how many sins do you think we have? Just, Just this past week. How many times have we done the opposite of what God has asked us to do. You see, the people that Habakkuk's writing to, they had been sinning and disobeying God over and over again for about 40 plus years. And for about 40 years, the prophet Jeremiah had been preaching to them saying, hey, you need to repent and turn to God again. You need to carefully obey his truth again. 
And the people kept going to church. They didn't quit going to church, but they refused to repent. And now this message has come to Habakkuk, and, and he's having to hand it off to the people to say, well, here's the fruit of our disobedience. Here's what's happened now because of all of our rebellion. When the Chaldeans took over, they completely wiped out the resources of the people. There were no homeless shelters. There wasn't a rescue mission. There wasn't a food pantry at the church. There were no relatives you could go stay with. Everything was wiped out. They were destitute, and they were facing daily starvation. And we see a story like that in the Bible connected to God's people, and we go, wait, wait a minute, that, that's not right. Or we experience something difficult in our lives, and we go, well, I guess God doesn't love me. I guess God doesn't care about me, because if God cared about me, he wouldn't let things like this happen. I mean, I'm sure some people in the Bible felt that way, right? I mean, Moses in the desert, Joseph in prison, David in a cave, Jonah in a whale. I mean, I'm sure they had some moments where they were thinking, God, what's happening here? What are you doing? Someone said in those moments, those men and women of the Bible, they could not put the pieces of their jigsaw puzzle together. That they couldn't figure it all out. We now, though, we can look back on those stories and we go, oh, isn't it amazing how God was in control and how God was working in Moses' life? Isn't it amazing how God was working and how God was in control of, of the life of Joseph? Isn't it amazing what God was doing? Here's the catch, though. In our jigsaw puzzles, we're not quick to say, oh, isn't it amazing that God's in control and he's working things out? Let me make it more practical. How many of us are willing to believe that right now in 2020, God is in control and he is working things out? We can sit in the sanctuary and we can kind of go, oh yeah, I believe that. But will you believe it tomorrow when you're watching the news? Will you believe it later today when you're scrolling through social media? Will you believe it when you get that gossip and phone call about whatever is happening in the community? Will you get it when you're sitting across the table or in line, hopefully six feet at the breakfast joint, and you're hearing somebody rattle on and on about everything that's wrong in the world? Can we in those moments say, our God is still in control, and I can't see the pieces of the puzzle, but He can. He can. He's in control, and He's working everything out. And what about the cross? I mean, if there's ever a time for us to look at a moment in history and go, what in the world is happening there? God, do you not care? God, do you not, do you not love us? Do you not love your son? I mean, you have to think the disciples were thinking, what's, what's going on here? Our leader is being executed right now. How in the world, God, is that going to usher your kingdom in? And yet, we now can look back on that story and see that God was doing his greatest work ever on the cross. 
We can't always see the puzzle pieces. We can't always see how everything's going. But there's never a reason for us not to say, God is in control and he is working things out. See, it's easy for us to praise God when there's food on the table and there's money in the bank. It's easy for us to praise God when we're feeling good and we're feeling fine and don't really have any health problems. But it's a whole other thing to praise God when things are not good. Jesus didn't call his followers to praise him in the good things and be mad at him in the bad things. He called his followers to follow period. So here's, here's the hard question. Do you praise and worship God for who he is or for what he does? For who he is or for what he gives? Well, the correct answer is we should do both, right? We should praise God for who he is and we should praise God for what he gives. But if God quits giving us what we feel like we want, or what we feel like we need, or what we feel like we deserve, or what we feel like is our right, if God quits giving us those things, really quickly we'll find out if we're authentic worshipers in spirit and truth, or if we're just Sunday Christians. See, the picture of of praising God is not removed because of the circumstances. Someone put it this way, if your desire, your goal is to be successful, you will not praise God when you're middle management. If your goal is to be wealthy, you will struggle deeply to praise God if you're poor. If your goal is to have power and authority in in the church or in your job or in your home or in the community or in the country, then you will really struggle if you don't have power and authority. You'll struggle if you're just an employee. You'll struggle if you're just a citizen. You'll struggle if you're just a church member. So what's the goal in your life? What's the primary goal in your life? And not just your life. What's the desire you have for your kids or your grandkids or your spouse or your nieces or nephews or other people in your family or friends or people you work with? What is your desire for them? Do you desire for them to to get a good education and to get a good job and to marry a nice person and to have a nice home and have a decent car and to have a good retirement plan more than you desire for them to be alive with Jesus when they die? Now, most of us would say, oh, no, definitely, Jesus is the most important thing. If so, then what does that look like in our normal weekend schedule? If Jesus is the most important thing, what does that look like in our conversations with our kids? If Jesus is the most important thing, what does that look like in how we spend our money or how we react to the news media? That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have good financial goals and good educational goals, good practical goals. It's good. Be goal-driven. That's good. But the picture of the gospel means that Jesus did not call us to take up our cross and follow him daily and make him one of our priorities. The goal is for him to be the priority and then all the other priorities and all the other goals, they fall into place. So what's Habakkuk's goal? In the middle of his distress, in the middle of this news that everything in his country was about to fall apart even more than it is at the moment, what's he going to do? What's his goal going to be? 
Look what he says in verse 18. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The pantry was going to be wiped out. Everything was going to go bad. And his goal still in that moment was he was going to rejoice. Evil was all around him in his country at the time. And more evil was coming. And he's not ignoring it. He's not blowing that off. He's not acting like it's not true. He's not pulling out his Kindle and reading a book and trying to drown it out. He's not watching a movie and trying to drown it out. He's not trying to squeeze in a round of golf or play some Mario Kart or anything else to try to drown out the reality of what's going on. He's not just trying to think good thoughts and ignore what's happening. But what he is doing is he's embracing the bad news. It's bad. It's going to get worse. And he goes, okay. Gonna, I'm going to take those thoughts captive. I'm going to pull those things in. And I'm going to rejoice. <laughs> I mean, this guy's muy loco, right? I mean, what in the world? He's going to rejoice? His country is full of sin and justice. Some evil people were about to come take over. Starvation was going to be next on the menu. And this guy's rejoicing? At the very least, Habakkuk's having a bad day, and at most, everything in his life is falling apart, but he's going to rejoice. How? Why? Because regardless of what happens, regardless of the circumstances, he knew there was one thing that would not change. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, Malachi puts it this way, For I, the Lord, do not change. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is the same today, December 20th, 2020, as he was April 20th, 1996, as he was June 9th, 1956, as he was October 31st, 1886, as he was December 25th, 8336. God never changes. He's the same. God's the same God today that he was in the Garden of Eden, the same God today that he was on Mount Sinai, the, the same God today that he, that he was in the vision of the valley of the dry bones, the same God today that he was in the manger. Nothing's changed about God. He's still in control. He's still working everything out. It's who he is. It's what he does. God told the prophet Jeremiah this, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Habakkuk's not rejoicing in his circumstances. He's not. He's not saying, oh, this stuff is great and this is fine, no big deal. He's not rejoicing in the circumstances, but he is rejoicing in the God that is bigger than his circumstances. The God that has always been bigger than all circumstances. He's rejoicing in God because God is God. Somebody put it this way. There is a great deal of difference between I love what you do for me and I love you. Habakkuk is rejoicing in God because he loves God. He's not making a list of everything God's not doing for him. He's loving God for who God is. So, question for our hearts and minds. Would we be able to rejoice in God if we're alone? 
Would we be able to, to rejoice in God if we were sick or if we're poor or if we're suffering, if we're helpless, if we're depressed, if we're discouraged? Things were bad for Habakkuk, and they were getting ready to get worse. But he was rejoicing. He was rejoicing in who God is. See, the gospel calls us to praise God for who he is. And if we were really to just lay this bare, dear Christian, if God never does another thing for you, you have every reason to rejoice in him. You may ask, how's that? Why? Well, when you're sitting in traffic, when you're sitting in a hospital, you're sitting at home and, and everything's difficult and falling apart, can you preach the gospel to yourself? Can you say to yourself, Christ died for my sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day. Can you preach to yourself, God so dearly loved and prized my soul that he gave his only son for me? Can you preach to yourself, I was dead in my trespasses, dead in my sin, and God made me alive with Christ. He's forgiven my sin. He's taken the debt that I owed for the penalty of my sin. He's put it aside. He has nailed it to the cross. I bear it no more. Can you preach the gospel to yourself? And what about this notion that God has nailed it to the cross? Is the cross enough for you? If, if you look in, in our Western world at how we think and how we live and how we act, we seem to say with our lives the cross is not enough. We seem to say with our lives on any given year that we're not going to cooperate with anything in the world unless what the world gives us is life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And if we don't get that, we're not cooperating. That's how it's been since the garden. And look, I love some life, some liberty, and some happiness. I, mean, I want those things. But there's a danger. And the danger is, if we don't get all of them, or even if we don't get one of them, we are tempted, prone to wander in such a way that we quit praising God. We, we quit rejoicing in God. If things don't roll our way according to our opinions and according to our ways, we far too often begin to say, well, I don't have anything to be happy about. I don't have any happiness to pursue in life. Dear Christian, let me let you in on a pretty amazing secret. If you've been saved, then the cross of Jesus Christ is something to be happy about. If you've been rescued and redeemed, the cross of Jesus, the Son of God, giving himself up for you, cancels every headline you'll read this week. Everyone. The Son of God rescuing you from sin cancels every headline. It's bigger. 
It's greater. It's higher. It's purer. It is deeply more satisfying. The cross of Jesus is something to be happy about. Now, we're not perfect. We're not always going to be happy, happy, happy. But the gospel reminds us over and over again that, that right now, from this moment forward, if God never does anything else for me, if the rest of my days are crummy, I have every reason to rejoice because he's already given me what I need the most. He's given me his son. Everything was going to fall apart, but Habakkuk said, I'm, I'm still going to rejoice for who God is. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that God gave his son for you? That's your greatest need. That need's been met. Why does that matter so much? Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is good news of great joy. That means that in 2020, Jesus Christ is the same as he was in the manger, in the cross, in the empty tomb, in the rising to heaven, turning for his kingdom. Jesus Christ will be the same in in 2021. And Jesus Christ will be the same in 2077. And Jesus Christ was the same in 1377. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Guess what? You're not. I'm not. Got my hair cut again on Friday? appreciate everybody's affirmation of my hair. I appreciate your joy in my hair. It's great. But I'm sitting there in that mirror, man. I saw a lot more skin this Friday than I saw last Friday. No matter how many things you try to keep the same, no matter how many schedules you set, nothing about your life is the same. Nothing about this world will be the same an hour from now. Jesus Christ, he'll be the same. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same forever. And that's why we go, oh yeah, this is still about Jesus. There's a story of a little boy who was very seriously ill. Somebody was talking to him and they said, do you know where you're going? The boy said, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Really? Do you you want to go to heaven? Oh yeah, I want to go to heaven. Why do you want to go to heaven? Because Jesus is there. What if Jesus leaves? Without blinking an eye, the little boy said, then I'm leaving too. You see, we have beautiful songs about the pearly gates and the streets of cold. But without Jesus, those things lose their value. The value of eternity, the value of today is connected to Jesus. And if you have Jesus, then you have every reason to rejoice because you have Jesus. You have Jesus. Now let's skip the 
the first part of 19. We'll come back to it. Let's go to the last part of verse 19. Habakkuk writes this, For the choir director on my stringed instruments. Oh, Habakkuk, he was the first guitar hero. He, he's got it. So he, he's, he's writing this poem. He's writing this song. It was meant to be shared. It was meant to be sung. In the middle of trials, in the middle of difficulties, he's wanting the people to remember God. He's wanting them to remember who God is. He wants them to sing of their Redeemer, to sing of their King. So, December 20th, 2020, how's your song? How's your song? I'm not talking about physically singing a song with your mouth. I'm talking about how's the song of your heart? What is your life really built on? Edward Moat said this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What are you leaning on today? Are you leaning on Jesus? Is he your sweetest frame I just love that. I love that term. It's your sweetest friend. We hear the word frame, and sometimes we think of a picture on the wall, and I guess that's okay, but, but the picture here is like a, a frame, a little section of a song. Is, is he the sweetest song of your life? Do you have your song? Are, are you still singing your song? Look, there is absolutely no ultimate hope in any of us. There's just not. There's no ultimate hope in us. But there is ultimate and grand and glorious and unending hope in the name of Jesus. There is joy. There is peace. There is love. There is hope in Jesus. So like Habakkuk, let's keep finding our song in Jesus. Now let's go back to the other part of verse 19. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. Last night I had to, about a 35-minute drive back to my house in the dark through the country, and I just knew I was going to see some deer. Thankfully, I didn't. But, but what happens when you're, when you're driving down that road and those deer come out? If they catch a glimpse of you, even during the day, what do they do? They're gone, you know, they, or they run out in front of you sometimes, right? But, but usually they get skittish, and, and they'll just turn and, and run back into the woods, and they're just gone. Can, can you imagine one of us trying to do what they do? You know, we'd fall immediately. Why? Because our, our feet aren't made to do that. Well, what about bighorn sheep? I mean, bighorn sheep, they are able in the highest elevations in the world to run and skip and play like it's nothing. Why? Because God made the feet of the deer and the feet of the bighorn sheep to be such that they won't slip and they won't fall in those places. This is an amazing picture that Habakkuk's writing. He's helping us see that God himself is giving us feet in Jesus, different feet, new feet in Jesus. 
What does that mean? Well, it means there's going to be some times this week where you're going to slip and you're going to fall. But God, if you're in Christ, He's giving you different feet. And that doesn't mean that you'll never lose a job. That doesn't mean you'll never face cancer. That doesn't mean that your spouse may not be difficult or your kids may not be difficult. That doesn't mean that you aren't going to have trials and tribulations and distress and difficulty. But what it means is this, that if we find ourselves and our feet in those situations, ultimately we can't fall. We can't fall. Why? Because we have Christ. So see, we can't really slip because Jesus would catch us. And we can't really fall because Jesus would catch us. In any difficulty, in any danger, even if we were to slip or fall, Jesus would catch us. But let's take that to the farthest degree. If I slip and fall, even losing my life, Jesus will catch me. It's who he is. It's what he does. Leonard Sweet in his book, Souls Balsam, tells of a tribe of American Indians that had a very unusual way to test and train their youngest warriors. Once you hear this story, it goes like this. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, he would be blindfolded and led out of the familiar surroundings of home and family deep into the dense forest. By the time he took off his blindfold, he'd be miles away in complete darkness all alone. That's how he would spend the entire night. Can you imagine what that would be like? With every twig snap, with every rustle of leaves or movement of branches, he'd wonder at 13 years of age what dangers there might be lurking, watching, ready to pounce. Undoubtedly, it would have been a terrifying night. Eventually, of course, the morning came. And when the first shafts of dawn's light broke into the forest, the young man would be startled to see the dimly discerned outline of a figure in the shadows. A man. A familiar man. His father. His father had been there the whole night long, right next to him. His bow and arrow at the ready, prepared to meet any danger that might come to his son. We are living in a dark time. A time that is frustrating and frightening. It's exhausting. It's stressful. We could say in many ways it feels like the, the longest, darkest night of our lives. And yet, the Christmas story is The story of, of Jesus is even brighter because it reminds us that God broke through the darkness of sin and death. It reminds us that in the middle of our devastation, in the middle of our distress, that God has already in the manger done His greatest work by sending His Son. And not just in the manger, but in the cross and in the empty tomb. 
Emmanuel, God with us, has always been with us through the whole night. He does not leave. He does not forsake. He is in control. And he is working all things out. So, come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King.